0: You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. And as a reminder, last week there was a dreadful, terrible technical glitch. <laughs> and at 7, 6.30 in the morning, I completely lost the entirety of my sermon and was forced with the task of rewriting it this week, which is actually harder than writing it the first time, believe it or not. <laughs> so we're in John chapter 17, and we're looking at what is called the real Lord's Prayer. So we'll be looking at the first five verses of John 17, and as a a bit of a review and a reminder, Jesus has spent probably an hour, as recorded in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, the events that surrounded the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet, this farewell discourse that prepares them for His imminent departure as well as helps to prepare them for the apostolic ministry that they are going to begin in just a short amount of time. So this discourse that we've been looking at is the last formal teaching that Jesus will give to His disciples that is recorded in the Gospels. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's very little said after the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. It is John and John alone that gives us any detail into, into the events that transpired after Jesus had his final meal with his men. So he has told them that he is leaving and they cannot come with him but that He is going to go and prepare a place for them. And as they have heard that Jesus is leaving, they are absolutely shocked. They are filled with deep sorrow. They have followed Him for some three and a half years. They've been with Him everywhere He's gone. They've seen everything that He's done. They've heard virtually everything He's said. And here He is telling them that He is about to leave. They have this expectation of the coming of the Messianic Kingdom, a literal physical rule of the King of David as prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving and you can't come. He told them that Judas would betray Him and Peter would deny Him. Nobody expected Judas to betray Jesus the way that he did. In fact, when Jesus announced the betrayal, they looked around at one another and said, who could it be? They never suspected for a moment that Judas would be the one that would betray Jesus himself. When he told Peter that before a rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter said, no, Lord, I will die with you if I have to. And he grossly overestimated his faith and his allegiance in Jesus. He also told them of the coming of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would teach them all things and remind them of all things that Jesus has said in the entirety of His three and a half year ministry. The Helper would come to encourage them and strengthen them and empower them and give them the ability to do what He has called them to do and the execution of their apostolic ministry and the Holy Spirit would lead them into all the truth. You and I are the benefactors of the work of the Holy Spirit through these men as we flip through the pages of of our New Testament, and we read page after page after page of the inspired Word of God birthed into the hearts and the lives of these men as they served Him and lived their lives in obedience to Him. He's also told them that they would be hated by the world just as the world hated Him. Why does the world hate Christians? Does the world really hate Christians? we sometimes come to the conclusion that because I am not directly hated by those around me, that surely this is just something that's overblown in the lives of a very small amount of people. But the reality is this, what we stand for as Christians, the truth of God's Word, the absolute moral values of the world, is, of the Word is hated by the world, and they will do anything and everything they can, To eradicate from the public's consciousness anything that stands for the truth of God. This is why things like the homosexual agenda have become acceptable to the vast majority of Christians. This is why abortion is seen as an alternate option for an unborn baby in the womb of a mother who is living a promiscuous lifestyle with another individual who is living a promiscuous lifestyle. And abortion in our culture today is nothing more than birth control not about the health of the mother. It's not about rape or incest. It's about I want to live my life the way I want and you can't tell me differently. And don't throw the Bible at me because that's archaic and antiquated and I will not subject myself to it. The world hates what Christians stand for, and when you take a stand for what God says, you will be hated by the world. As these men were on the eve of their apostolic ministry, they would face unthinkable hostility by not only the Jews, but also by the Romans, and we today, by extension of that same hatred, are despised by many many people in our world today. He also told them that to love Him is to obey Him. And in our obedience to Him, we prove that we really do love Him. He told them that they are to love one another just as He has loved them. What a radical view of what love really is. You know, it's easy to love those who love us. It's easy to bless those who who bless us. Jesus says, I don't want you to have a standard of love that is based upon what you think, upon what you've experienced, or upon what you decide to give. I want you to base your love for one another, and I want Christians throughout all of time to base their love on how I have loved you. How has Jesus loved these men? How has Jesus demonstrated His love for you and I today. I hope you don't say, well, gee, I'm not really sure about that. I hope you can look no further than the cross. I hope you can be reminded of the severity of the cross, of the undeserved consequence of the cross, and the reality that you and I sit under the grace and the mercy and the love expressed through the cross, and we should never ever wonder about God's love for us. All we have to do is just remember the cross. He told them that they would bear fruit as they stayed connected to him in their relationship. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the source of your spiritual life. He told them that they would be his witnesses in the world and that the helper that was going to come would testify about Jesus in the world. And so together... We testify to this lost and antagonistic world about the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. By the way, that is our commission as the church. That is our responsibility as an individual believer in Jesus Christ. He also told them that he had many more things that he would like to tell them, but they cannot bear them. Imagine following Jesus for three and a half years recognizing that He has the words of life, leaving everything that you've ever known in order to follow Him, having the expectation that He's about to inaugurate His earthly kingdom, and you're going to have some unbelievable role in that kingdom. You're going to get to see God's kingdom on the earth, and all of a sudden, Jesus pulls the plug and says, I'm leaving and you can't come. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to think. And so all through this discourse, Jesus is encouraging them that they can have peace and they can have His joy because He's going to send to them the Helper. The Helper is going to come and be everything to all believers all over the world, all at the same time, and that's better for you. I'm not sure they believed it at the time, but they would come to believe it as they saw and experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. So we come to John 17. The discourse is completed, and the entirety of this chapter is a record of the prayer that Jesus prayed. Some approach this prayer with a sense of somberness or gloominess, because Jesus is just a few hours away from the cross. But in fact, this prayer is a declaration of victory, because Jesus has just stated at the tail end of of chapter 16, that I have overcome the world. And it is with that in mind that Jesus begins to articulate this prayer to the Father what is called the real Lord's Prayer. Not how He instructed others to pray, but how He Himself prayed on the eve of His death. The victory in overcoming the world would come through the cross. Not the overthrow of Rome, not the establishment of a literal physical kingdom, but through the cross. God wanted to build a spiritual kingdom. God still desires to build His spiritual kingdom through you and I today as we continually work towards that until the day that Christ returns or our physical life expires. This prayer is divided into three major sections. Our section today, verses 1-5, through is what Jesus prays for himself, or in regards to himself. The second section is what Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. And the third part is what Jesus is going to pray for future believers. I don't think we'll get through all of this in two more sermons. It's probably going to take a little more than that. But that's the basic general outline that is agreed upon by most commentators and scholars. So let's look together in John 17, one through 5. I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which, was, which I had with You before the world was. So we'll look at this in five different sections in our outline, and it happens to correlate with each of these five verses in our section today. So the first outline point is this. It is the request That Jesus makes. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus prays for glorification. I want you to think about this. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be taken into an illegal Jewish trial. He's going to be sentenced to death. And He is going to be nailed to the cross. And here He is praying that the Father be glorified. What is it that you and I pray when, when we are up against the worst circumstance we could ever imagine in our life? Do we pray for the glorification of the Father? Or do we pray for the removal of this unwelcome unwanted thing? Jesus prays that the Father... Would be glorified. The phrase there, Jesus spoke these things, indicates two things. One is the discourse has come to an end, and Jesus, by the account of John, is now praying based upon all the things he has already said. One commentator went on to say that this prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17 is a summarization of the Gospel of John in its entirety up to that point. Not sure that you could go that far, but it very surely summarizes everything that Jesus has said in this discourse. With his teaching and preparation of the disciples completed, he turned his attention to the Father in prayer. How often do we read in the Bible, in the pages of these Gospels, that Jesus went off to pray? Over and over and over, we hear that Jesus went off to pray. He prayed at His baptism. He prayed before He chose the disciples. He prayed before and after the feeding of the 5,000. He prayed at His transfiguration. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and many, many other instances. And the widely agreed upon end result is this. This is probably the only point in Scripture where the entirety of Jesus' prayer is recorded for you and I to hear. When he went off alone to pray, there was no one there. The Holy Spirit did not bring that to the minds of the apostles and the other writers of the New Testament in order for us to read today. This is a very unique recording within the Scripture. Here, the entire prayer is brought back to John for him to record through the work of the Helper. This is one of the things that Jesus promised the apostles that He was going to do. The Helper is going to come and remind you of everything that I have said and He's going to guide you into all truth. And so while John audibly heard that prayer with his own ears, more than likely he could not have recited it back exactly, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, he gave to him exactly what Jesus prayed as recorded for us in in this chapter. So he prays for glory. He says the hour has come. And all throughout the Gospel of John, John emphasizes Jesus as saying that the hour has not yet come. I could uh, cite several examples of where Jesus says the hour for the Son of Man has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My hour is still a little while away. Here Jesus says my hour has come and this is the hour that has been established before the world was ever created, and eternity passed. This hour, way, way back before the beginning of time, has finally come. The hour is the consummation of Jesus' earthly ministry, and that hour constitutes His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Everything about the life and the ministry of Christ is consummated at the cross. The incarnation is completed at the cross. The first advent of Christ is completed at the cross. The hour that would bring about the reconciliation of sinful man to a holy and a righteous God. That hour has come. On the eve of this hour, when Jesus is going to experience agonizing pain and cruelty and shame, he prays for glory. He prays specifically for the glory of the Son. Glory is a common theme for Jesus all throughout His ministry. He never sought His own glory, right? He only sought the glory of the Father through the Son. And so this is exactly what He prays here. That the Father be glorified through the Son. The birth of Christ brought glory into this world, as did His teachings, as did His miracles. And now the time had come for the ultimate glorification of the Son, and the ultimate glorification of the Son is going to come through the cross. I've said this before, you may not remember me saying this before, but the cross is the fulcrum that the entirety of human history sits upon everything about the history of our world sits upon the glory of the cross. The glory would come through the completion of the Father's eternal plan of redemption. Let me say that again. Glory would come through the completion of the Father's eternal plan of redemption. Jesus is praying that the cross would come He's praying for the cross to come so that the Father would be glorified through the Son. What the Pharisees saw as their own personal victory, what the evil satanic world system thought was a victory, was in fact the glorification of the Son through the cross. The cross will come for the Father's glory. This is what Jesus' entire life was about. Everything He said, everything He did, everywhere He went, had a very singular and specific purpose, and that was to bring glory to the Father through Jesus' unwavering and perfect obedience. Even though this section is universally considered what Jesus prays for Himself, He is really praying for the Father's glory and for Him to be a conduit that that glory would flow through. This is what Jesus prays for himself. The ultimate glorification of the Father would come through the cross, as God's one and only son would pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. Glory comes through redemption. Does our redemption bring glory to the Father? Well, theoretically, yes it does. Positionally, in our spiritual world, it does. But practically, we have to ask ourselves the question, does my redeemed life bring glory to the Father? Is who I am becoming, is what I am doing bringing glory to the Father? You see, Jesus' entire life was about glorification of the Father. And that glory is going to come through the cross and Jesus says, the hour has come and I am ready and I want the Father to be glorified through my life. The cross displays the Father's righteousness, His justice, and His holiness in requiring the blood of His one and only sinless Perfect son. Think about that. Could God have established another way? No. Because God is perfect. And to appease a perfect God, it takes a perfect sacrifice. And this is why we read specifically in the book of Hebrews that there is no amount of bull or goat or lamb or sheep or anything else that could ever. Truly wash away the sin of man. It was one sacrifice for all time. It was the blood of his Son, and the cross requires Jesus' blood to be shed. We read in First 1 Peter 1:18 1, and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Romans 3:24 and 25 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed now God would be entitled to make you and I pay the penalty for our sin But in His righteousness and in His justness, God required the blood of His Son because our blood would never even satisfy the holy, righteous requirement of the Father. So you have one side of the cross which displays God's justice and holiness, but the other side of the cross brings glory to the Father because it displays His grace, His mercy, and His love by sending Jesus, the one and only, the sinless, perfect Lamb of God to die in our place. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the glory of the cross satisfies God's righteous and holy requirement and the glory of the cross also displays the Father's love and mercy and grace and it is for this reason that Jesus says, glorify Yourself through Me in fulfilling the hour that has now finally come. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify the Son so the Son is able to glorify the Father. When was the last time you and I prayed a prayer like that? God, I pray that You would slay me through my circumstances so that I might bring glory to You. I'll be honest, I've never prayed that. This is what makes the life and the ministry of Jesus so unique is that in incalculable ways, He is everything we are not. So He prays that the Father would be glorified. Secondly, we look at the right that He possesses. Verse 2, Even as you gave Him authority, as you the Father gave Him, Jesus speaking of Himself, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. So the right that He possesses is very simply all authority. The biblical word for authority is somewhat synonymous with the word sovereignty. We say God is sovereign. What that means is God is in control, that everything that is operates under God's kingdom's rule. And Jesus says that all authority has been given to me by the Father. Jesus, in the shared Godhead, is sovereign over all of the universe. He stated this in the onset of His ministry in John 5.27. And He, the Father, gave Him, Jesus speaking of Himself, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. As Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, He said in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. So there's two options here. Either Jesus has all authority or Jesus is lying and doesn't have all authority. What do you think the world in general believes? I came across this silly clickbait ad at the bottom of an article just a, just a short time ago. And the the tagline was this. 30 people that some historians believe didn't even exist. And I thought, well, I, I can predict some of this. So I went ahead and clicked through it. And sure enough, right around number 11, Jesus. Many historians believe that Jesus didn't exist. And the rationale was there's little secular historical evidence and there's just vague writings in the New Testament. What New Testament have you read? I mean, the whole thing's about Jesus, isn't it? So we have this option. Jesus either has all authority or He doesn't and He's lying. And these apostles who 11 of the 12 would die martyrs' death and Christians for more than 2,000 years have lived and died in vain because Jesus is just a hoax. Well, Jesus says that He has been given all authority and He specifically identifies the two areas that He has authority. Number one, He has authority over creation. Verse 2 says, over all flesh. What does all flesh mean? Every living thing, every breathing thing, every created thing. Jesus uh, Jesus has authority over all creation. It's a generic description that indicates that Jesus has authority over all of mankind. And throughout His ministry, this authority was demonstrated in many, many different ways. One of which was His teachings. We read in Matthew 7.29, For He, Jesus, was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus spoke and taught with such authority that His audience had their jaws on the floor, and they would say to themselves, we never heard anything like this before. Jesus exercised His authority not only over all creation, but over all of God's Word, God's person, God's work, God's desires, and it was all capsulated in the personification of Jesus' life. He has authority, he demonstrates his authority through his teachings. What Jesus says is eternal truth. It supersedes the teachings of man or the opinions of man because it comes straight from the Father. Jesus demonstrated His authority over all creation through His healings. Who else could give sight to the blind? Who else could give hearing to the deaf? Who else could give legs to those to walk who had never been able to walk? Who else could raise the dead to life? Jesus exercised His authority through His healings, through His exorcisms, and casting out the demons and the unclean spirits, and His miracles where He calmed the storm, and He walked on the water, and He turned the water into wine, and He took the loaves and the fish, and He multiplied to feed thousands and thousands of people. He exercised His authority over the man-made Jewish customs of the day, healing on the Sabbath, not observing the ceremonial rituals that were outside of the teachings of the Old Testament. Jesus exercised his authority over all creation by granting forgiveness of sin and offering salvation in his name. Jesus' entire ministry was a demonstration of his authority over all creation which validated the claims he made about himself. Secondly, he has authority over redemption. It says here specifically that to all whom you have given me, and this is the gift of eternal life. Jesus has the authority over eternal life. He is the source of eternal life, and he has been given the authority over eternal life. If you think about what we've studied in the Gospel of John, And if you think specifically about all of the great I am statements that Jesus made about Himself, it affirms that He is the source of eternal life and He has authority over it. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Me. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold. Each of those statements and the other three that I didn't mention all affirm that Jesus has authority over eternal life. This authority is His because of the cross and it belongs exclusively to Him. The kingdom of God is mediated through Christ and the cross and through no other means. Because He has authority over all creation and all of redemption, the entirety of the universe is subject to Him whether they acknowledge it or not. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how rich you are, how educated you are, how ignorant you are, you can stand and say, well, I don't subject myself to the authority of God. You're wrong. You do. You just don't acknowledge it. And this is the reality, what Jesus is saying, is that He has authority over absolutely everything. He is the sovereign God over everything and over everyone. Colossians 1, 15 and 17, the Apostle Paul would write these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn born of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You either believe that or you don't. And if you don't, it doesn't make it untrue. So this right that Jesus possesses is the fact that He has authority over everything. Thirdly, we see the relationship that He offers. Thinking about the prayer that He prays that the Father be glorified, thinking about the right He possesses as the sovereign ruler over everything, there is this relationship that He offers. Now you would think that somebody's ears would go, wait a minute, what is he about to say? This sounds like it should be really, really important. Here's what he says in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the relationship that Jesus offers is knowing the Father, the one true God. Now when Jesus says the one true God... There's an implication here, isn't there? The implication is that there are a lot of false gods that are out there, but if you want to know the one true God, I know how to make that happen. You know, it's funny when you talk to people about something you need in your life. A doctor, a chiropractor, a plumber, an electrician, a mechanic. I know a guy. i got a guy. you got to call this guy. He can do it. He can fix it. He's the best guy out there. I promise you. Well, in terms of eternal life, let me tell you, Jesus is the man. He's the guy. And He's about to tell you how you can know the Father. This doesn't speak of an intellectual belief It doesn't speak about knowing facts about God. It speaks of something much, much deeper. To know, biblically, means there's intimacy. It means that there is a personal relationship. Now, I know you, don't I? I know your name. I know where you live. I've been in many of your homes. I know what many of you have done or do for a living. But I don't really, really, truly know you, do I? We don't have the depth of intimacy that gives me the ability to say, "I know Bob." I picked on Bob a little bit, so I'll keep that going here. I know Bob. I know what Bob did. I know Bob worked for Pico for many, many years. I know he's married to Jan. I know they got kids, got grandkids, and they're all over the place. I know a lot about Bob, but I don't have a deep, intimate relationship with Bob. And Jesus says. I can provide for you a deep and intimate relationship with the Father. To know the Father is to have eternal life. You know, there are many world religions that purport themselves to be the pathway to God. They will say, we know the way. We're not so sure about your way. But perhaps your way and our way converge someplace spiritually that I can't see or identify. And maybe all paths lead to God because, you know, the spirit thing is just kind of out there. Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism are just a few of the many, many examples of an organized religion that thinks they have the pathway to God. There's also many cults that claim themselves to be the pathway to God. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian Science and Scientology and the Unification Church, all of these groups think they have the pathway to God. But Jesus makes it very, very clear. Knowledge of the Father, a relationship with the Father, only comes through the Son. Now, I'll be very honest with you. There is a a large portion of our world out there that says, now, wait a minute, that can't be right. That's totally unfair. You are making yourselves out to be exclusive. And in that thinking, you're being narrow minded and intolerant. You're casting judgment on millions and millions of people who have lived moral lives. Well, I didn't say that. I didn't make this up. Who made it up? Who said it? Jesus is the one that said it. We preach and believe in an exclusive relationship with God through Jesus the Son. This is what Jesus said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. We either believe it or we don't. Jesus is either telling the truth or he's lying about the pathway to God. Well, what we say as Christians only affirms what Jesus has said repeatedly in the Bible. John 1, one fourteen. Excuse me, what is repeatedly said in the Bible.
1: In the beginning was
0: the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14.7 If you had known Me, you would have known My Father. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I'm not making up the rules. I'm just communicating what the Bible says the rules are. Jesus is the only way. All pathways don't lead to God. You can be the most moral person the world has ever seen, and if you don't know Jesus, you're not getting to heaven because He has authority over eternal life. And if that seems unfair to you, take it up with God, not the messenger. Isn't that right? But you know, we live in this PC world of tolerance. Well, you know, you can believe that and that's true for you, but hey, don't impose your truth upon me. I get to establish what's true for myself and you don't have anything to say about it. Well, I don't have anything to say about what you believe to be true, but that doesn't mean what I believe to be true as communicated to the Bible isn't true just because you discount it. Just because the world considers this belief of exclusivity to be narrow-minded and intolerant doesn't make it any less true. The world doesn't decide what is truth. The Father does. And He sent Jesus to declare this truth. And it is by this truth that all the world will be judged. Why? Because Jesus has all authority. All authority over all creation and all authority over redemption. And I can absolutely guarantee you that there is going to be a long, long line of people who are going to stand at the great white-throat judgment and they're going to say, "Uh uh-oh, I got it wrong. And at that point, it's just too late. Jesus decides what is true. Jesus will judge based upon that truth and this is exactly what He is affirming. Praise God that He has allowed us to know the truth about who He is. Think about how many people live their lives in some spiritual, religious expression and are thoroughly and totally deceived and will stand before God on the day that their life expires and He says, I never knew you. Well, number four in our outline is the requirement that Jesus meets. Verse four, Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So this is all a part of the building up of the consummation of the hour that is at hand, and that is the cross. And Jesus says that I have done everything you've given me to do. He has completed the work. This speaks of two things here. This speaks of Jesus' completion of everything the Father has given Him to do up to this point. He has said everything He's supposed to say. He's done everything He's supposed to do. He's gone everywhere He's supposed to go. He's healed everyone He's supposed to heal. He has gathered up His disciples in exactly the way the Father has prescribed. He has completed the work that the Father has given Him to do. And He speaks of this as His singular mission, and it's recorded for us very early in His ministry in John chapter 5.30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Either that's true, or it's not. You see, it was Jesus' commitment to do exactly what the Father told Him to do. If the Father didn't say go, He didn't go. If the Father said stay, He stayed. He has done that to absolute perfection. To do anything that the Father has not told Him to do, or to not do something... Let me say that again because I just confused myself. If He were to do anything that the Father didn't tell Him to do, or if He didn't do something the Father told Him to do, that would be sin. And if He were to sin, then He could not be the perfect sacrifice that satisfied God's righteous and justice requirement. By His own testimony, Jesus affirms that He has done everything that the Father has told Him to do. So this speaks of everything up to this point, but Jesus is also looking forward to what is about to happen, and that is the consummation of this eternal plan of redemption where Jesus is going to hang on the cross and die as a consequence and a penalty for the sin of the world. So He completed the work which culminates in the cross. The hour has come, and this hour is the very reason for which He left His place in heaven, came into the world that He created, and became a man. His teachings have affirmed who He he was. His miracles confirmed His testimony about Himself. And while all these things were a part of God's plan for Him, his true purpose was to go to the cross and become, an, and become an atoning sacrifice for sin. So in order to be the atoning sacrifice for sin, He had to be a perfect sacrifice without any sin at all. So at the beginning of the Gospel of John, as we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, we're introduced to him in John 1. In John 1.29, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John had prophesied Jesus was about to complete. Lastly, in our outline, number five, the reverence that he deserves. Verse five, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Boy, there's a lot in this little verse right here. The theme of glory is repeated here as Jesus expresses His desire to return to the glory that He shared with the Father before the world began. How could Jesus share the glory of the Father before the world began if He was not eternal with the Father before the world began? Jesus is speaking about two parts of the Trinity, and the third is about to come after the Father pours Him out on the day of Pentecost and completes the expression of the Trinity within the human understanding. So Jesus temporarily set aside the glory that He shared with the Father at His incarnation, coming into the world in a little stable in the town of Bethlehem, Born to two very young and very poor people. Should have been the biggest party the world had ever seen. And yet he was born in obscurity, in a dirty little barn. And he gave up temporarily the glory he shared with the Father from the beginning of time. So He will take it up again. He's going to take up this glory again at His death and burial and resurrection. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves this because of who He is. He is one with the Father. He is the one and only Son. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is expressed so of God the Father. You see the theme there? Jesus is pursuing the cross as difficult and as unwelcomed as it is, humanly, He is pursuing it for the glory of the Father. It is this glorification of the Father through the Son that enables Jesus to willingly embrace the cross. He knows that what He's about to do is going to bring about the magnification, the adoration, the praise of, and the worship of the Father through His work on the cross. Hebrews 12.2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. At the beginning of this farewell discourse, the disciples were overcome with sorrow and grief And Jesus is sharing with them why they can have peace and joy because the Helper that's going to come through the apostolic ministry that they're going to live out and they are going to have the ability to be a conduit for the glory of God and that's exactly what is true for you and I today. Our little lives are seemingly obscure, unimportant lives in some way have the capacity to bring glory to To the Father, through the Son. Think about that. Not because of who you are, but because of who He is. Because of what He's doing in you. Because of what He desires to do through you. The cross made eternal life possible for all who believe in Jesus Christ. If it were not for the cross, there would be no salvation. For anyone in any age, no gospel of grace, no hope for this life, and no eternal destiny except for hell. For these reasons, the cross brings glory to the Father through the Son because it speaks of His redemption of mankind. You today if you profess to know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you claim to live your life under the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you have the capacity to bring glory to the Father through the life that you live. The real question is, do we really, really desire that? Would you bow your heads in prayer? Well, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for this insight into the heart of Christ <clears throat> who in the final hours of his life prayed something that we have probably never ever prayed before. And that is this, that through the most horrific experience anyone could ever imagine, you be glorified. So Father, I pray that you would pop the bubble of the life that we live and the self focus and the self-preoccupation and that we would think about the reality that we have the ability to see your name be glorified through our lives. If that can't bring to us the fullness of the joy of Christ, I'm not sure what will. But I pray, Father, that you would give to us a heart like His, that we would be willing to pray a prayer like His. And that we would surrender our life like His in order for You to receive glory. Father, we recognize we have so far in our journey to go. But we thank You that You're gracious and merciful and faithful through the entirety of our walk with You. And although we may not be what we ought to be, we give You praise and glory that we're not what we used to be through the work of grace, through the truth of the cross. So I pray, Father, that together we would live our lives under the reality and the truth of Your glory and do all that we know to do for Your name to be exalted above every name as it is deserving of. We give You thanks and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.